radio call was made on March 24, 1989. An oil tanker had struck Bly Reef in Alaska's Prince William Sound. It was the start of one of the biggest environmental disasters in U.S. history. This is Making Waves from NOAA's National Ocean Service. I'm Troy Kitch. In today's show, the Exxon Valdez oil spill, 25 years later. After the Exxon Valdez spilled nearly 11 million gallons of crude oil into the ocean, a team of NOAA scientists arrived on scene to provide scientific support during the long cleanup. Biologist Gary Shiganaka was a member of that team. The Exxon Valdez was his first introduction to working on a big oil spill for NOAA. It changed the course of my career and possibly even my life, and it really defined the challenges of understanding environmental disturbance in a complex setting like Prince William Sound. That's Gary, and he's with us today by phone from his Seattle office, where he works as a marine biologist in NOAA's Response and Restoration Office. He said that part of what made this spill unique was not only its size, but that it happened in such a remote place. There just weren't any response assets that could quickly be called up to go clean up the oil. Like vessels and airplanes and people and specialized pieces of gear like containment boom. Prior to that other recent spill in the Gulf of Mexico, the Deepwater Horizon, it was the largest spill to occur in in U.S. waters, and it was a benchmark in a lot of ways. The shortcomings that were identified during the initial and longer-term response resulted in major changes to U.S. law, primarily expressed in a piece of legislation called the Oil Pollution Act of 1990. That law led to things like making sure we were more prepared and better trained to deal with spills, pre-positioning equipment around the nation, and requiring all oil tankers in the U.S. to have double hauls. But these changes only tell part of the story. The kind of change we're going to talk about for the rest of the show doesn't involve improvements in ship haul design, new laws, or better training. It involves nature and how scientists try to figure out what's going on in nature. 25 years later, how is this remote region of Alaska faring? Well, that's a question that we'll see is not so easy to answer. Remember when Gary said that this spill defined the challenges of understanding environmental disturbance in a complex setting? Well, what exactly does that mean? Well, he said Prince William Sound is a very complex ecosystem, a place with gravelly intertidal areas, glaciers, and exotic wildlife like whales, salmon, and sea otters. And above all, it's a region where the environment is constantly in flux. This area changes very rapidly from year to year. Our monitoring program after the spill really showed how variable the Prince William Sound marine environment is, even without a disturbance like the spill. Uh, So this is looking at the unoiled, what we call control site. And this inherent variability has translated into big challenges for tracking the signal of the spill, especially after the first year or two, you know, after it begins to, to fade 
a little bit, then it gets harder to separate the signal of the spill from the inherent background variability that is characteristic for Prince William Sound. Basically, if, if things are changing a lot at the sites that you're monitoring and it isn't linked to the oil spill, you know, how do you define when things are back to normal? In quotes, I guess that would be. Adding to this inherent variability, there was something else to consider. And the other thing that made it unique at the time of the spill was the fact that it really was still recovering from another major disturbance that happened exactly 25 years before the Exxon Valdez, and that was the Great Alaskan Earthquake, which was one of the largest that's been recorded to date. And we can uh, really focus in on Prince William Sound because Prince William Sound was one of the most impacted areas in Alaska. There were places that were uplifted as much as 30 feet during that particular earthquake. So you can, you can imagine that the shorelines changed really radically. So then we would have a human event superimposed on a larger scale natural event. So it's a complex kind of picture. So given all of these variables, can we really say anything about how fish, animals, and plants are recovering from the spill? Well, Gary said in some cases, yes, but it often depends on knowing what conditions were like before the spill happened. Whenever we have a spill, or when we're trying to assess the impact of any action or disturbance on an environment in question, we always ask, well, what were things like beforehand? And for oil spills, we rarely know. In the case of the Exxon Valdez, there was one exception, and it's proved to be important. The exception was a monitoring program of orcas that had been ongoing in the sound for at least five years before the spill. That pre-spill information showed that something in 1989 drastically reduced the numbers of orcas in two groups that, that frequent Prince William Sound. And that's something that's mostly unheard of in generally stable populations of large marine mammals. And then the continuing monitoring after the spill has shown a very disturbing recovery pattern. One not so disturbing, one group of uh, orca whales in Prince William Sound is slowly recovering, but the other group of orcas is declining towards extinction. So that kind of demonstrates um, what the value is of pre-spill information, but again, it's very rarely available. So the next best thing that we've got for comparing oiled or clean site conditions to those at unoiled sites is to look at comparable uh, sites that were not subject to the impact, in this case the oil spill. After the spill, other long-term monitoring studies were started, some of which are still ongoing today. One study looked at how the gravel and rocky shorelines along the Sound recovered from some of the more aggressive cleanup methods used to remove oil. Were shorelines more damaged by the cleanup than the oil alone? The answer turned out to be yes. But the flip side is that these beaches also recovered quite quickly. And this points to a reality of cleaning up oil spills. It's often about choosing between trade-offs. There was more damage, but the shoreline communities fairly quickly compensated for that additional damage. And within a year or two, they were about at the same place. And then after three or four years, most of the damage from both oil and cleanup was, was gone, so we could say that they were effectively recovered. So you put that into a cleanup context and you try to determine what the trade-offs are. You know, are you willing to accept that kind of a cost 
to get more oil out of the environment. And that's something that happens all the time in terms of making your choices for oil spill cleanup methods. And then there are still things that science can't yet explain. I asked Gary what's surprising today about the spill after so many years, and his answer surprised me. There's still pockets of oil in some places in Prince William Sound and along the Alaska Peninsula, and it's still relatively fresh. I don't think anyone really expected that after 25 years, and we don't fully understand why. And I think that's something that'll be important to try to figure out for the future. Unexpected pockets of relatively fresh oil, gravel beaches that return pretty much to normal after four or five years, animal populations that have recovered or are still struggling to recover today. How do scientists deal with so much often conflicting data? How can we know if changes or recovery times are due to the oil spill or if there are other factors at play? How do we know when an area is recovered? This all points back to what Gary says is the main takeaway lesson after 25 years of studying the aftermath of the spill. The natural environment in Alaska and in the Arctic are rapidly changing. And if we don't understand that background change, then it's very hard to say if an area has recovered or not after a big spill. I think we really need to keep in mind that our maybe pre- prior notions of recovery to as returning to some pre-spill or absolute control condition may be outmoded. We need to really overlay that against the dynamic changes that are occurring for whatever reason and adjust our assessments and our definitions accordingly. I don't have the answers for the best way to do that. We've gotten some ideas from the work that we've done. I think that as those changes begin to accelerate and become much more marked, then it's going to be harder to do. So given what we've heard so far, 25 years later, is Prince William Sound generally considered recovered from the spill? No. There's a pretty robust research program that's been going on in Prince William Sound, not just ours, but a a whole series of research and monitoring activities, and mostly under the auspices of the Exxon Valdez Oil Spill Trustee Council. He said that this group has been looking at a fixed set of resources for nearly the entire time that has passed since the spill. And um, slowly but surely, their list of impacted resources has been switching from one column, or impacted, to the other column, recovered. And most recently, they've moved a couple of persistent unrecovered resources, and that would be sea otters and harlequin ducks, from the not recovered column to the recovered column. So that's good news, but you know, we've still got a handful of resources that remain in the not recovered column, and including the orcas that I mentioned. The, the short answer to the question, I think, is because not everything has moved over to the recovered column, then we can't really say that Prince William Sound has recovered. But, he added, Prince William Sound has made a lot of progress over the past two and a half decades. It's in some ways encouraging to see that the uh, environment can rebound from something like a major oil spill, but it is still a little distressing that we can't just say 25 years after the the fact that things have recovered completely. And Gary attributed most of that progress in environmental restoration not to human efforts, but to the resiliency of nature. Nature has pretty much on its own. I mean, we 
did some good with the cleanup, but the estimates of how much oil that our cleanup efforts removed from the environment versus the amount of oil that was naturally degraded or removed from the environment. It, it's pretty discouraging in terms of the scale of the efforts that we pose during a spill. It comes out somewhere between 10 and 15% of the total oil spilled was recovered by our cleanup efforts. So the natural environment pretty much does the job on its own, and we can help a little a little bit, and I think we can make a big difference for highly sensitive areas. But for the most part, we're just a footnote to, to uh, oil spill cleanup from the environment overall. So what we know is that things have improved over time since the spill in Prince William Sound, but it's hard to quantify because the environment is changing so quickly and in so many ways. This variability and rapid change is perhaps most profound in the Arctic. And as the Arctic continues to warm and the prospect of more human activity in this region seems inevitable, think of shipping and oil exploration, what can Exxon Valdez teach us? Well, I think for us, the very concept of an oil spill in the Arctic is scary, and there are a lot of reasons for that. First of all, it's obviously a really difficult environment to work in, because of the the weather and then logistically as well as culturally. So, you know, if you thought that Prince William Sound was remote, then responding to a spill in the Arctic would be like almost like working on the moon. But also from an assessment perspective, the, the Arctic is kind of on the leading edge of some of the most rapid and radical changes that are taking place in the natural world. People who live in that area talk about the absence of long-term ice, the, the old ice that used to be a, a part of the, their environment, or the fact that the cellars that they use as natural refrigerators and freezers now are melting and flooding. So the Arctic communities are, are really bellwethers for the changes that are occurring related to climate change and a lot of the other large-scale influences that are taking place because of human influences. So that's going to really affect our ability to characterize impact and recovery for the same reasons that it's difficult to do in a place like Prince William Sound from the Exxon Valdez. That was Gary Shiganaka, marine biologist with the Emergency Response Division of NOAA's Office of Response and Restoration. You've been listening to Making Waves from NOAA's National Ocean Service. Subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us some feedback about what you think of the show. We'll be back in a few weeks with a new episode, and thanks for listening. <laughs>